just going to get everything officially kicked off. Officially welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kalia Garrido, and I head up marketing and events here at Great Data Minds. Um, if you don't know us already, Great Data Minds is a collective of passionate data activists, and we are on a mission to modernize the world of data. We do this in two different ways. The first is that we have our services arm at Great Data Minds Innovation Labs. This is where we do strategic planning, education, the deployment of critical data projects. And then over here in on what I like to call the fun side of the house, I know it's fun mm -hmm. on both sides. Mm -hmm. Here, this is where we get to talk the talk. We get to host great events just like the one you're about to see today. We run our videos and our podcasts um, with transformational thought leaders and we explore new technologies uh, just, just like what we're going to do today. So before we get officially kicked off, a little bit of housekeeping. This is a webinar, so of course, all of you attendees, uh, your cameras and microphones are off, but we would welcome you to use the chat if you have insights, information, questions to share. Um, we'd like you to use the chat versus the Q&A because then some of your other um, attendees can see it as well, and then we see some really nice uh, you know, kind of crosstalk in the chat as we go, so please, um, have at that. And then we're also going to reserve a little bit of time at the end of our session to go through um, a more formal Q&A. So that will be available to you as well. Um, so today's session, we are so excited to host the next episode in our data and analytics author series. Um, allow me to do some introductions for my esteemed guests. Uh, we have Dr. Barry Devlin, Joining us today, he is a world-renowned data architect, business intelligence, and data warehousing analyst and consultant. He's also an author and a speaker. He is a founder of the data warehousing industry, defining its first architecture in 1985. Uh, and as a foremost authority on BI, big data and beyond, he is respected worldwide as a visionary and a thought leader in an evolving industry. And today we get to have him here with us. Thank you so much for joining us, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. And my partner in crime, as always, uh, we have the one and only Mike Lampa with us. He is an accomplished transformation agent. He has a specialty in modernizing enterprise data and analytics programs. Uh, Mike's expertise lies in the selection and implementation of modern tech tools, platforms, and the creation of tactical migration roadmaps. He is our very own Chief Analytics Officer here at Great Data Minds. Mike, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Kalia. Hello, Barry. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. Awesome. And you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm really excited about today's session. Um, and I think I'll start with the captivating title of this book, Business Unintelligence. What? are we talking about there? What is business unintelligence? What are we trying to solve here? Yeah, business unintelligence, intelligence, business intelligence. What's the opposite to, to intelligence? I mm. think was where I was trying to get to when I came up with the title. Um, and there wasn't a good word. So I decided <laughs> to put it and say unintelligence. But what I was really trying to grasp hold of was this idea that we need more than this rational decision-making mind when we come to business decision-making. That mm -hmm. We need to figure out something that is a bit more uh, intuitive, a bit more right brain, a bit more bring the gut feel into it. And mm -hmm. I know that um, that may uh, not sit well with some people because there is a very strong um, feeling around and there's a very strong uh, thread in the in the industry about being data driven, and I'm mm -hmm. sure we'll come and talk about that later. But um, back then, when I was writing the book in 2010, 2011, 2012, big data was becoming the thing, mm. and analyzing big data and doing the big deep dives and let's store everything and let's analyze the it to death was really the the um, was really the thing that was going on. And although I was very clear that we wanted to, I wanted to, you know, propose a different architecture, a new architecture um, for the whole area of data warehousing, you know, different from what had been beforehand. Mm -hmm. I was also aware that there was this thing going on in the background that the answer is going to be found in the depths of the data. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I 
I, I sort of, um, I balanced out whether I wanted to focus on the architecture thought or whether I wanted to focus on the, I want to do something new about decision-making. And in the end, it was decision-making. And that's why it ended up being business unintelligence, the opposite to business intelligence. Yeah. And, and, and the business intelligence of the last 40 years, you know, we had decision support systems, we got BI business intelligence. Um, why aren't, after 40 years, why are we not moving the needle on enabling better decision making? I think that's a I think that's a really good question. And I think it's a question that has been posed many times by consultants and analysts and indeed BI tool vendors um, mm -hmm. who would love to get the needle above 25% of of the of the whatever population it is that could be using BI. Why aren't we moving that needle? Well, I, I really suspect that it's because we don't understand the process that happens between the information. And let's go back and say the data, the process that happens between the data on one end of the of the pipeline and the decision at the other end and the action at the other end. Mm -hmm. There's this sort of, I suppose, um, it's just, the magic happens here. We give you the data. We in IT, we're good guys. We provide you the data and uh, you go away and make your decisions. And mm -hmm. yet, I think what we've not really really got to, to grips with is how do we really um, support that decision-making process? Because mm -hmm. it's not technology. And that's where I think the the, the, the real problem lies. Uh -huh. it's, it's, it's about people. It's not about technology. Yeah. And we're going to delve into that a little bit more without a doubt. Um, as, I, as I read the book and you availed me to your, the thought processes, I was like, oh my gosh, he is bang on. And even though the book was published, what, 2013? Yep. Right? It's 10 years um, old. It is 10 years old. And what I found is it has stood the test of time. The architectures and the, and the, the key principles and disciplines we're about to talk to, they still, still apply. They always have applied, right? As an industry, we got to get better. So in the book, you mentioned the biz tech ecosystem. Could you help the audience understand where you're going with that ecosystem. Uh, yeah, BizTech ecosystem. I loved that phrase when I came up with it. I thought that was a really good phrase. And it never caught on because actually it really means the same thing as digital transformation in today's language. Mm. But I think it's actually a better name for what we're trying to do because what I what I was trying to capture was this idea that there's business people and there's IT people, and we form together an ecosystem. And in, in an ecosystem, the parties and the, the participants in the ecosystem are actually um, symbiotic. They're codependent. That's, not, <laughs> that's sometimes not said to be a good thing these days mm -hmm. among relationship theorists, but I think it is a good thing. There's a codependency that goes on. And we've not really got that to work very well. And I felt that when when I was redoing this architecture, I wanted to start off with the, the thought point that um, we in IT, and I consider myself an IT person, really mm -hmm. needed to understand and really understand business um, in order to figure out how to use data and how to use information to help decision-making. But we also needed business to understand something of IT, something about the, if you like, the, the complexities that go on behind data. Mm. Um, and I was sort of confident at that time that, you know, with the emergence of smartphones and the emergence of all of the stuff that, that has come out in IT, that the people who are coming into decision-making roles, coming into management, are much more capable these days uh, in understanding technology. And I think they are very happy to swipe left, swipe right, and do all of that stuff. I'm still not sure even 10 years later that business people really do understand the complexities of data and information. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe that's down to us. We've not maybe done a good enough job in, in explaining it. But, mm. but I still meet that that challenge. But it's the ecosystem world, I think, that really excited me because you know, I think that's the way I would like to see it work. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and certainly we do need that symbiosis going on. Uh, we've got to bring bring it together because it does take a tribe. Um, as humans, we are we're naturally biologically wired to be codependent on each other. Right? Yep. Uh, now there's healthy codependence, right? Um, but we are wired, and we need other people around us. So you mentioned a couple of times now, Barry, um, data and information. And in the book, you 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 make a pretty strong uh, distinction, but isn't it essentially just a synonym of of each other, at least from an IT perspective? I think we in IT do use these two words as as synonyms, mm. but I think we have caused ourselves a huge problem by doing so. Um, and I often think about this this as I I'm asked this question all the time, and and. People find it very hard to get that there is a difference or that it's important that there's a difference. Um, I think of the fact that we have these uh, um, chief information officers, CIOs, um, in our businesses. And what do they worry about? Well, actually, they worry about technology, mm -hmm. enough, because we've called our, our, um, our, our, our whole area information technology. So we focused on that half, the, the information half. And then we've got these other people these days in a new sort of role, the chief data officer. And the data officer is often talked about as the uh, focusing on and being worried about data quality. But mm -hmm. if you really think about what, what he or she is, is doing, it's information quality. And I've sort of come to the conclusion over many, many years that when you think about data and information, the best way to think about it is, Information is what we use to communicate with one another, how we speak to one another, how we see one another, how we're, you know, creating this, this communication. And information is what we use to communicate. It's words, it's images, it's facial expressions, it's videos, it's all of that stuff. That's information. Mm -hmm. And when we want to analyze that world of information, what do we do? We give it to data modelers better information modelers, we give it to those guys and they strip out all of the context and they end up with something that is very simple, like figures and text, uh, variables, if you like. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the essence of data. It's information that has been stripped back in order to make it easily stored and easily used and easily analyzed on computers. Hmm. Sometimes I I've recently started to call it naked data, um, just to distinguish from the fact we've stripped all the context of it. Hmm. Uh, now, what we do in BI and in, and in data warehousing is we take this data in our databases, in our data warehouses, in our data lakes, we put tools on top of it, and we then, um, we then try to add the context back onto it in order to get to the information we, we need to make decisions. So there's this sort of circular loop that goes on between the two. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I think is important. And that context setting is, I think, critically important. <laughs> you, you brought up as a couple of concepts throughout the book too, around hard information and soft information. Uh, there's a wealth of information available to us outside our four walls, outside of the, the hard data that's evidence of business transactions. Um, and we got to figure out how to get better at weaving those together to get that deeper context. Uh, because I need to get meaning out of this data, right? And yep. the context probably is going to help us get there. Um, so and, Matt, and, mm -hmm. and it'd be interesting, just I'd like to say, say sort of, but in there a little bit, context is a two-way thing, right? Context is something that's really important and interesting when we are as people creating the data, you know, when we're building the application. So there's a, a context of data creation, but then there are multiple contexts of data use. And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why we've always had problems with data warehouses, because many different people do different things with the same data. Mm. They're using it in different contexts. So 
I don't know if it's in the book because it's been a while since we, we wrote, since I wrote it, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think that I've over the years really come to the conclusion that there is a context of creation for data. And then there's multiple contexts of use for data. Mm. And when we get that into our head, we get to interesting thoughts like there's no such thing as as a single version of the truth. There mm. are multiple versions of the truth, depending on the context in which we're using the data. Yeah. yeah the, ever, the ever elusive single version of the truth. Uh, I often ask for a show of hands. How many people have achieved it? <laughs> Nary a hand goes up, right? <laughs> so, um I like the idea that kind of comes across in the book around you've elevated the citizenship of metadata. Um, and you really make a, a, a point there is that it's really context setting information. We need to gather that and hang on to it and then leverage it and use it over and over again and, and embellish upon it because things do change as we have seen over time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like to, I like to think of metadata as two four letter words. Mm-hmm. and data and the reason i say that is because first of all it's not data it's information data is the stuff that doesn't have context so it cannot be data it's information and the meta you know says it's data about data no no it's it's information about information so yeah that's how i sort of say to people hang on stop using the word metadata the mm. sad thing is that nobody Absolutely nobody that I've ever spoken to will let go of the word metadata. Mm-hmm. It rolls off the tongue. And I say, context setting information. How about CSI? You've seen that on the TV. <laughs> no, still metadata. So mm-hmm. I just have to say metadata slash context information, setting information. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking about data and we think about information. I mean, really, at the end of the day, data and the information around it it is being created and owned by the people in the business yet it's not theirs it's it's right you know you get these different perspectives going on is it it's or is it is it um is it business you know at the end of the day are we not in a position to start to produce some kind of reciprocal trust and understanding and knowledge around the data and information we're processing uh, I wish it, I wish we could, and and I often, I often try to get that done when I'm doing consultations and doing uh, engagements with with clients. Um, but it's, I think that there's there's a sort of a fundamental um, mental problem within business and IT, and and I the way I think of it is that the the folks in in business and IT sort of pay lip service to this idea that the business owns the data or the information. Mm -hmm. That is to say, we're all happy to say it, but when it comes down to it, the business folks are actually much more interested in just getting profits made or getting whatever the actions taken that they need taken. Mm -hmm. And so they don't really have the time or the interest to spend, uh, to, to invest the time and to invest the work necessary to own it. So ownership mm. requires you to do something. It requires you to take responsibility, to think about the stuff. And I think business and many business people in many cases are um, are simply too busy yeah. and interested well, in other things to really yeah. take ownership of the of the information, which is a shame, because. IT people, in my experience, are not terribly interested in data. Most of them are not terribly interested in data. They love the technology. Just mm. give me a just give me some programming that I can do. Give me a give me a machine to play with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the data is <laughs> it's boring a bit. Uh, yeah. So we have that sort of we have that dichotomy. And there's a few of us around yourself included, Mike, who think and know that this information and data is really important. It requires deep and and deep consideration and intention in you know in order to to use it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are the prophets uh, that are perhaps not recognized in our own land. Well, and I, I, I dare say we 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 can't give up, you know, especially when you, you hear all the rhetoric out there. I'm going to monetize my data. I'm going to democratize my data. Well, you got to have good, solid data to begin with, and someone's got to own 
that responsibility. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So everybody's clinging the data-driven decision in Gong, right? Um, uh, but is that the only ingredient to enabling optimal decision-making or is there more to the recipe? Yeah, I think there's much, much more to the recipe. So I've, I can, I've concluded, and it's, it's dated back, I think, to the emergence of big data, particularly where people began to focus on this idea that, you know, the answers are hidden in the data. There's gold in them, there are data. Hills that people would be saying, and it's become very popular. And then it moved on to being data driven. And I think if you look at the physical world, I think that's probably a pretty good uh, thought. So if you look at data that's coming from sensors, for example, on a on trucks, um, and you're analyzing the 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 faults that are developing and the rattles and the vibrations and the temperatures and whatever. I think there's great possibilities to lead you to conclusions about, you know, this component is getting nearer to failure and therefore we can do predictive analytics. And when you're working in the re in that physical world, I think that's really good. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is that we have that we really find it's much more important to work in the world of people. And strangely enough, people are not like machines. Mm -hmm. um, they don't fail in the same way. They don't actually um, follow through with the an analytics in quite the same way. So we have this idea, I think, over the years, we've developed this idea that we can use this data that comes from sensors and that comes from uh, click streams and whatever as proxies for understanding what people are thinking and feeling. So we'll do things in the insurance, the auto insurance industry, for example, we'll take the data that comes from the onboard computers that was really designed to monitor how's the engine working? How are the brakes working? How is the whatever working? And then we take it into the insurance industry and say, hey, that tells us how about the driving skill and the driving behavior of the driver. Well, yeah, maybe it does in some cases and maybe even in many cases, but it's only still a proxy. And we really don't know what's going on in people's minds. The same with click streams. Click streams tell us quite a lot about what people are looking at and pointing to and interacting with on the screen, mm -hmm. but it probably still doesn't tell us what they're thinking. And more importantly, I suspect what they're feeling. And so I have a feeling when we talk about data driven it's great when we're talking about the physical world i think we have to be really careful when we use it in the world of people and the world of organizations and the, particularly in the world of um social interactions and governmental interactions where it really does um have a a, a very big impact so for example you know, if we're using it to to doing this data driven thinking and saying, well, that will enable us to uh, let me let me think. Yeah, we can we can do something about uh, weeding out uh, prospective applicants for jobs based on data driven uh, analysis and AI analysis. We'll talk at AI, I'm sure, in a few minutes in more depth, but we mm. use that data to do some of the um, pre sorting and, and pre, um, yeah, pre-sorting of, of the applications. Mm -hmm. Actually, what we're doing is possibly um, eliminating people who have particular skills or have come from particular backgrounds or have whatever it happens to be simply because the data suggested that we should do so. And mm -hmm. I think in that sense, data-driven decision-making can be quite a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm picking up a thread here. Maybe it's more information informed, right? I mean, how do we breed insight? I so often I hear, you know, I have to have an actionable dashboard. Well, that in, implies that I'm delivering some kind of insight or I'm enabling some kind of formation of an insight. Yeah, I I agree. I, I tend to I tend to like the phrase information informed or being insightful. 
Um, and and I think that's a human uh, characteristic as opposed mm -hmm. to a machine characteristic. Mm -hmm. Data driven feels like I'm a machine. You put the data into me one end and it comes out the other end of the decision. I'm not liking that image somehow, but you know what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. uh, information informed, I think, is a sort of it's an easy it's an it, it rolls easier off off my tongue, at least. Right. Yeah. Get away from the, the D's and go to the I's. <laughs> So data, while being very necessary, I'm picking up a signal here, Barry, from you that it's not sufficient, right? We need to get that context, which is information. We need to be able to breed insight. Right? Yep. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's press on here. So there's been kind of like this death and rebirth of information, right? Big data era kind of brought it about. Um, What's different this time around as we're looking at our brave new world 10 years after you wrote the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, we've we've gone through quite a um, quite a time over the last 10 years. I mean, I think there is still this idea that that you know this tsunami of information that is around. Well, actually, it's more a tsunami of data that we've encountered. We started off thinking it was going to be really important. Um, Everybody jumped on that particular bandwagon. And, uh, you know, big data was one of the movers and shakers of the industry in the 2010s. Mm -hmm. um, what I was thinking as I was writing the book and big data was emerging at that time was that there are three different types of data and information that we need to deal with in terms of their meaning, in terms of their uh, usefulness and in terms of the technologies that we might use in order to uh, in order to to process them, and what it came to my mind was that there was this stuff that we knew about from the sixties that was created in our operational systems mm -hmm. through processes, business processes that you know people had labored long and hard to make them. Um, as foolproof as possible. And I started calling that process-mediated data. And mm -hmm. process-mediated data is the stuff that we use to run and manage our business. It's the legal foundation of running a business. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we don't forget about that. These days, it's maybe 1% of our data estate, but it's a really important 1% of our data estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, contrast that with machine-generated data. Machine-generated data, typically the stuff that comes from sensors, is what we might call the big data of the 2010s. But machine-generated data is has different characteristics, one of them being that we may not be very certain about its quality in comparison to process-mediated data. And so we need to treat them differently. We mm -hmm. need to understand that they have different quality characteristics, different timing characteristics, different characteristics in the way they change in terms of structure or content. All of those things gave us those two types, might give me those two types of data. Mm -hmm. And then there was that information stuff, which I've called human sourced information. And mm -hmm. that's basically the messages and the um the messages that we exchange be between one another, whether mm -hmm. those are messages are words or text, whether they're videos or these days, you know, um, uh, TikTok videos, whatever mm -hmm. it happens to be, they're human sourced information. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to, if you like, extract the data from those, extract the value from those. And we do that sort of by understanding their meaning. I often think about, for example, we look at a video and the, the director opens with a shot of the Eiffel Tower. And we all immediately think, ah, the movie set in Paris. Mm. Probably a few people who think it's set in, in Las, uh, Las Vegas, because there is, of course, an Eiffel Tower there too, but it's not quite as big. But anyway, we immediately think, ah, Paris. Mm -hmm. And that's our context. That's where we get the data. We have mm. the picture, the Eiffel Tower, the data, Paris is the location, and I think mm -hmm. it's that's the way we work. Yeah, so I love that 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 concept that you brought out in the book around the tri tri domain model, which is that uh, uh, process mediated data, the evidence of us 
conducting business. Um, of course, the machine-generated data, and then there's information, human-source yeah. data, um, where everybody is trying to use that information as a proxy to determine what are my attitudes and behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, which is context. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'll get figured do figure out how to do is codify this contextual <laughs> information. Yeah, well, if, if I knew the answer to that, I would be a millionaire. <laughs> uh, so at the end of the day, aren't we, um, aren't we kind of striving uh, to get to the same insightful decision-making? Where do we start? Uh, I I think that we have to recognize that there is not a direct path from information to decisions, that there are intermediate steps, that there's a mm -hmm. process in between. And, and I think that's what's really important. Um, and I can think, I, I like to think of that, first of all, in that, in two ways. But the first way I like to think about it is that there is information that we gather throughout our lives, you know, from the time we were uh, knee high to a grasshopper, I think is the phrase, right? And, <laughs> and we are absorbing information and mm -hmm. we're turning it, I think, essentially into knowledge. That's the stuff we carry around in our heads. It mm -hmm. might be tacit knowledge. It might be explicit knowledge. There's different ways of categorizing it. But it's things like knowing that and knowing how and knowing knowing the you know the the inner ins and outs of the information that we've gathered over our lifetime and mm -hmm. that knowledge we carry around in our heads and whenever we start on the decision making process i think mm -hmm. we are beginning to engage that knowledge and that's why you know somebody who is knowledgeable within a particular part of the business is so useful um, because they can take the information that's coming out of the bi tool and combine it with the knowledge in their heads to, to if you like, process it some more. Mm -hmm. so there's that knowledge that is really important. And then there's this sort of intuition and so on that goes on top of that, which we sort of think about in terms of gut feel is a phrase that we often use. Mm. So this is where we're bringing in the, the right brain. This is where we're bringing in the, the amygdala and the other parts of the brain that are not involved in logic. Mm. Um, and that's the first, if you like, the next stage of it. Yeah, how do I, how, my gut telling me? And then finally, we end up doing some social interaction. So I don't know of very many decision makers perhaps with the exception of Elon Musk, who make decisions without consulting anybody. We all go and we talk to our peers, we talk to our managers, we, we go through a social process at the end of this decision-making. And I think it's in that process where meaning emerges. Mm -hmm. And know why. Why is it that that was important? And mm -hmm. why is it important to our business? And what motivates me to to ask the question and to try to find an answer in a particular way and i think motivation is another thing that we really need to consider so as i said earlier on you know it's not just about the information it's about a whole lot of it's not about the technology it's about a whole lot of human things that happen between mm -hmm. information and the decision and unless we actually at least recognize that those are things um, that are important, we're never going to understand how to really create a process for uh, decision-making. Mm -hmm. and, and you did bring out, and I was so encouraged to see this because uh, I'm a process pundit, you know, how can I possibly optimize the organization if I don't understand the processes to begin with, right? Um, in, in one of your chapters, you talked about applications going to apps and other process peculiarities. Um, um, things that need our acknowledgement and our attention. Um, and I was, like I said, I was really happy to see that reinforcement of the, of the importance of process. But let's talk about process in the terms of decision. Because what I was getting from, from your book was there is a whole fundamental process that goes into decision-making and no one person does the same thing. Yeah. I, I I think you're right. And I think the the... <sighs> 
what has disappointed me, I suppose, in the decades since I wrote the book is that I've never been able to really find a, a really good way of expressing that process in sufficient detail that people can, you know, implement it. Um, I, I started and, you know, I have this 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 model, as you know, this this ideal architecture, which is three blocks. It's got information. It's got process. And it's got people on the top, right? Mm -hmm. And I call these thinking spaces. And you can read that down and say, people process information. And, and that's essentially what, what we're trying to do in terms of doing decision making. Mm -hmm. and, and I then got to the level of saying, well, I understand that people need to trans transform information into knowledge and knowledge needs to be somehow uh, encapsulated, let's say, and mm -hmm. and on, we understand it in the context of people feeling things about it, and then socially the meaning of it. But I've never been able to find anybody, and maybe this is because I I've not been in the right places that mm -hmm. could really tell me, yeah, okay. But given all that, what would a process look like in terms of the details of of that in a very generic way? I mean, mm -hmm. I've talked about in the book about different processes, uh, cyclical processes and mm -hmm. non-cyclical processes in terms of getting from information to decisions. Mm -hmm. But I've never been terribly happy that I really, I really got enough of the um, of the detail of that to really say, and you know what, Mike, these are the steps you need to take. Right. As I say, I think that's where the magic would lie if we could get to that. And you being a process guy, maybe you maybe you could take this and run with it. Well, I got to figure out how to process map a brain, right? <laughs> Come on, Mike, you can do it. You can do it. Yeah. So, um, care and grooming a content context, right? Um, the, the other thing you you mentioned was doubling down on knowledge management, but is knowledge management isn't it isn't it document management, content management? I think so. I. Uh -huh. I I've had many um, interesting discussions with knowledge management consultants um, who want to knowledge to, to manage knowledge. And I keep saying, but knowledge is in here. Mm -hmm. How are you going to climb in my head and manage my knowledge? Mm -hmm. um, and I think what they really do is they they manage knowledge artifacts. And those artifacts tend to be documents or videos or whatever they happen to be. Mm. Um, and it's actually more information management, although we can't really use that phrase because we use that for something different. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's the care and the grooming of the content mm -hmm. in the organization. And one of the things that I, I I'm sure I, I spoke about in the book was that not all of that information is formal information. There is formal information, and it's important that we we manage that and we groom that and the content, uh, as you call it. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a more informal set of knowledge in most organizations. It's written on down on on um, bits of paper on people's desks. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's a very informal stuff that gets discussed at the at the water cooler. Um, mm -hmm. And at, back in the back in the 10 years ago, I thought I was quite uh, excited about the thought of being able to capture that informal information mm -hmm. and uh, use it as a as a way of um, helping the process of decision making. I think what's really scared me in the in the interim is that there are people who are starting to do that and record it. But I think they're really using it not to help decisions, but actually to figure out what they can sell to us. And mm. only that and trying to manipulate us into buying stuff or thinking in a particular way. And I think that's wrong. I think mm -hmm. you, could, you, you can use information or in, indeed any tool uh, for good or for bad. A hammer can can drive in a nail or it can, you know, kill somebody with, over the head. With, mm -hmm. head with it. So I think we're sort of more veering towards the use of information as a weapon uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to using it as a tool. But that's probably a, another debate that we sure. <laughs> not want to get into here. Yeah, well, yeah, every great uh, invention, right, um, has its uh, applications. Some, some were desired, and some were um, <laughs> surprises. Yeah. So um, there's a 
lot of attention these days around the word of innovation. I see innovation everywhere. Look, look at my company name, Innovation Labs, right? Um, and I dare say, you know, if, if we were to do a, a, a word cloud in our industry, I think or innovation would be the biggest word, right? Um, but, but where does innovation really incubate and happen? I'm of the opinion um, that innovation is really, uh, is really something that comes out of collaboration and comes mm -hmm. out of cooperation between people. Mm -hmm. um, sure, I of course, um, people come up, individuals come up with new ideas, but I suspect that they come up with new ideas largely because they've been interacting with other people and they have somehow managed to bring together those new ideas and, and uh, so those formative ideas and combine them in a new way. And I think I always feel that we need to find a way to uh, emphasize the collaborative aspects of, of organizations in order to bring out innovation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thought these days. I'm watching this um this stuff that's going on at the moment where there are big companies saying, I want to bring people back into the office, uh -huh. you know, and, and, and there is of course, you know, a financial side to that, that I'm sure yeah. is important. But one of the things that I think is interesting is how do you uh, enable collaboration through zoom? How do you enable the sort of interactions, the personal interactions, the one-on-one -on -one, that mm -hmm. I can see that if you like, the, the light in your eyes, Mike, it's not mm -hmm. showing so well on, on Zoom. Uh -huh. But if I, you know, I can, I, if I'm with you face to face, I think there's a different interaction that can go on. And mm -hmm. I think that in some sense is part of the, um, the power of collaboration to drive innovation. Mm -hmm. And of course, I feel so sorry for people who've come into the industry or any industry in the last five years, you know, mm -hmm people into organizations and the only way they know their colleagues is is through a camera that's that's not really that's not really good but that's different from innovation that's a, just a, another mm -hmm. thought that that comes up for me but i think that innovation comes from this ability to get to meaning when mm -hmm. we get to meaning and the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell each other then in those stories, we find those little gems, those little nuggets of, oh, that's where where we could possibly find a piece, a new innovative thing. Yeah, the new aha moment. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's not rational, so, right? It's 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 irrational. It's it's emotive. It's intuitive. It's all those words that we tend not to think about when we start uh, talking about, let's say, artificial intelligence. Mm hmm. Oh, and that's my fear when we start talking about artificial intelligence and indeed generative AI, that mm -hmm. we're stepping so far back from the interaction of people and believing that in all of this data that we've captured and have analyzed it with a thousand or a million different models through an AI system, mm -hmm. that we can actually come to either innovation or indeed very great decisions empathic decisions, socially aware decisions. I think AI can do lots of things, but I think that's one of the things it's not going to be very good at. Yeah, we gotta we must keep the people or the humans in the loop, right? Absolutely. Um, because it um there is this need for collaboration. There is this need to storytell with each other, right? Um because through that we start to put more meaning and then we have those insightful aha moments, right? The other thing that came out in the book, and I loved it because it kind of leans into our doubling down on following lean principles, is the whole concept of things are constantly evolving. We need to have a sense mechanism in place to respond to the evolution, including the way our minds think are evolving. You know, we, we've mentioned you know, just in the last three years, we have evolved quite a bit, right? So it's important that we keep all these things very, very intrinsically uh, tied together with the data, right? Uh, and I loved your uh, the the uh, the closing chapters. Wither now, Barry. Right? <laughs> Share a little bit, please. Yeah. 
wither now. Yeah, 10 mm. years on. Uh, <laughs> what does this old guy think? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, um, I've, you know, I've moved moved on through the industry. I'm doing different things. I'm actually interested in writing fiction, to be absolutely honest. I have a, a fantasy nice. story that is that is um well well on its way to 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 being completed. But mm-hmm. let's keep on the focus of other things that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um I would like to think that we are going through another technology evolution at the moment, and that technology evolution is the move to the cloud. Mm-hmm. And there is a sort of a, a sense out there that this is going to change everything, that there's a huge, huge impact on the way we do stuff, on the way we make this, do decision making, for example, on the way we do lots of things within the business. And I, I decided that it would be good to go back and look at this. What does data warehousing mean in the context of cloud? Mm-hmm. Um and that's why I'm just going to do the punt now while I remember it. Cloud Data Warehousing, their book. Uh-huh. Um, so the, the thought, looking at that, what I really discovered was in terms of conceptual architecture, that is to say, uh, information, process, and people, nothing's changed. It's the same, mm-hmm. strangely enough. I could have, we could have predicted that perhaps. Mm-hmm. Even at the logical architecture level, there is actually relatively small amounts of change. And I've been really pleased that the architecture, the real and the ideal architectures that I wrote up in Business on Intelligence 10, 12 years ago have stood up so well because mm-hmm. they actually fit. But what is what is going on at the moment, I think, is a a shift in the industry where we're seeing a huge number of new concepts being pushed and and created. And I'm afraid that many of them, or at least are to some extent marketing concepts. Mm. And I'm talking about words like data lakehouse, data fabric, data mesh, and all of those things that are being talked about as the new way of doing decision support. That's an old term. Mm. Analytics. Um, in the cloud. And I think the the real the, the reality is what they are is simply reworkings of old ideas applied to a cloud environment. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I wanted to touch on in this this book, and so there's two volumes in it, I'm writing volume two at the moment, um, is really to try to explain to people that the stuff that we talked about in the 80s in the 90s, in the noughties, in the teens, mm-hmm. it's all still true. It hasn't changed mm-hmm. since then. Information and data still have the same fundamental characteristics. The way that they interact interact have the same characteristics. The way that people use them have the same characteristics. Yeah, it's different because it's a distributed environment and, you know, we're doing um, uh, and an, we're having Google and and uh, Amazon store it for us. But at the end of the day, it's still data. It needs to be transformed into information. When we transform it into information, we need to, you know, get the knowledge out of it, get the meaning out of it. It's the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And we should not be, if you like, um, distracted by people telling us hey hang on i've got this huge great new thing it's mm-hmm. called data xyz and i'm not going to choose any of the three ones as being good <laughs> bad or indifferent on this call lest i offend somebody but <laughs> it, we really do need to be aware that it's still the same thing yeah it's still yeah. the same old stuff yeah which um, which is what we old people always say i told you so this yeah, was yeah. the way it was when i was young uh, the fundamental principles are still very sound. Um, and the more we keep that in the back of our mind, as well as account for the fact that we are evolving as a species, right? Um, yes, the technology is evolving around us, but the way we are interacting in our in our lives is evolving as well. And we need to embrace that. That's that cold, continuous sensing and, and um, improvement which helps you get to that 
innovation because you're collaborating around it. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I noticed one of the attendees put in a, a comment right at the beginning saying business requirements are changing from time to time. And I do agree with that to, to an extent. Um, but I think the fundamentals are still the same. We're, you know, in, in the business world, we're still trying to sell stuff. In mm -hmm. the world of government, we're still trying to support well, we hope we're still trying to support people to to live better lives. Mm -hmm. Um, not sure that some of the politicians around would agree with that, but <laughs> never mind. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I don't think that the world has changed that much. It is evolving. We are evolving as a species. Mm -hmm. Of course, as we're doing these type of, you know, long distance interactions, we're we're growing new. We're growing new synapses. We are mm. we are learning new things. Yeah. But we're still people at the end of the day. We're still we're still, you know, fundamentally driven by this strange mixture of logic and emotion and need to be loved. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it's probably the need to be loved that we need to focus on and, and the need Very, to give back to. It's a good motivation to have, right? <laughs> Very beautiful book, Business on Intelligence, and now your first volume on the cloud data warehousing. A definite, both of them, in my opinion, for the folks in the audience, uh, both are definite must reads thanks mike and, appreciate and I, that and i appreciate your contribution to our industry barry it's phenomenal that's because i was or that's maybe still am the illegitimate grandfather of data warehouse <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome thank you gentlemen so much for this great conversation and thank you to everybody um, who joined us on the line, I've put a couple things into the chat, just requesting that everybody follow us if you want to see the recording of this event or a whole host of other data and analytics events that we have. You can find us on YouTube. I've shared the link there. And then also, Barry has been generous enough to offer the attendees of this session a 25% off code for either um, the book that we've reviewed today, Business on Intelligence, as well as his new book, Cloud Data Warehousing Volume One. So take a look in the chat to find those links in the code um, that you can use. I'll also send that out as a follow-up email. Um, and just, sorry, sorry, uh, just for clarity, that's for the PDF versions uh, only, okay. not, for the, mm -hmm. not for the hard copies. Yeah. yeah. So you can't dog okay. your, you got to print out your PDF if you want to dog your stuff like I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody um, I see your note, Charlie. I'll respond uh, again in here. I think you signed in after we did this. So I'm going to drop it in here for you again. And then um, that's it. Yep. That's it, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, Barry. Thank you for sharing your insight. Mike, thank you for running this um, uh, author series uh, event. And I wish everybody a wonderful day. It's yes. been a huge pleasure. Thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed yep. it. Thanks, Callie. It's been a really, really good working with you guys. Yeah. Hope we can do it again. Yes, I enjoyed our Absolutely. collaboration. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and, and the stories we told. <laughs> you take care, right. Barry. You, Thanks, you everyone. Bye-bye.